You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Prepare yourself. You're on the run with Remzo W. Martinez. Alex, I do truly enjoy reading your stuff. And, you know, the last time you were on the show a year ago, I enjoyed the conversation, too. I just wish I was bringing you on for, like, happier things. Like, I feel like now I only associate you with, like, you know, life-changing events in our society. I'm the doom and gloom guy. You know what? I'm a little bit used to it. When you, uh, when you write about macroeconomics... When it's a really interesting time macroeconomically, that's usually not too good for ordinary American families, businesses, households. So it just comes with the territory. But these are important public issues. And so I'm, I'm happy to be here discussing them with you. We're, we're, we're going to talk about the current rate of inflation. But I, I, I've been thinking about this more often. They're, they're what I define as like the people I know who are really into this stuff, who are more likely to throw, throw out terms like, Runaway inflation, quantitative easing, monetary policy, Keynesianism. And then you've got like the rest of America just doing their thing. And when everybody else starts saying, you know, inflation's actually really bad right now, and everyone else on the other side is kind of running around with their hair on fire, that's when I really know that something is actually happening. It's, it's almost like an indicator species in a given ecosystem. As soon as that thing disappears or arrives, you know something bad is happening. And when people I know who have never known what inflation was prior to all this are all saying, you know, the price of milk is increasing and everything else, that's, that's when you know it's actually, like, hitting us. And I feel like for a lot of things, we tend to notice this type of stuff, not as it's occurring, but once it's already hit us. We have entire generations of people who quite literally have never seen inflation numbers like this in their lives. Think about it. If you were born in 85 or later, you've never seen 7.5% inflation. You really need to have been alive uh, back in the early 70s through the early 80s in order for any of this to be real to you. So a lot of this stuff that was previously only in the textbooks and rarely talked about by the mainstream media because it just wasn't a problem, well, all of a sudden it's real to you now. And the price of milk, the price of gas, the price of materials for building a new home, the inability, the, uh, inability to buy a car right now for any reasonable price, all these things are sort of coalescing together. And it's understandable that Americans are wondering what the heck went wrong. This must be a weird time for you as a professor, because on the one hand, you've got like one of the greatest real world, you know, examples of what happens when monetary policy goes awry. But at the same time, it also must be one of the situations where it's like, it's not just me who've told you people this. People have been warning you about this for decades now. In fact, I was actually on, I was probably on the wrong side of this debate as recently as September and October. Uh, that's when I wrote a piece for the Wall Street Journal saying, look, I know that inflation is starting to creep up, 
but we have to face the facts. There's probably a large supply side component to inflation. So it's not just Congress spending spending money. It's not just the Fed printing money. It's all the supply chain problems that we've been having. And so if those are a major contributor, then trying to bring inflation back down to its historic average around 2% could actually cause more harm than good. And so we have to be careful. Uh, so that was a prediction on my part that didn't pan out so well because new data has come in. And I think it's clear now that although supply side problems are still real, demand is in the driver's seat. It is Fed money printing. It is the massive increase in government budget deficits that's fueling all of this. And we can argue about which of those demand sources is ultimately contributing more, but I don't think that you can write this off as a supply side inflation that's just transitory. We've had, I think, eight months now where inflation year over year was over 5%. If that still counts as transitory, then what the heck does that word mean? So pretend I'm really stupid. How does the current supply chain impact the rate of inflation? Sure. When you have supply chain problems, it makes producing goods and services harder. What does harder mean to an economist? More expensive. When production in general gets more expensive because we're having productivity problems, because we're having a hard time securing crucial input goods like energy, semiconductors, things that we use in a whole bunch of goods, that's going to drive price increases all across the economy, precisely because it's getting harder to turn inputs into outputs. And so that's a very different thing than demand-side inflation, government spending, money printing. But nonetheless, when you measure prices, the end result is going to be the same. The index is going to go up. So again, I still think that both of those things are happening. But I think that the usual suspects are now actually the more likely suspects. I do think that this is primarily demand-side, whereas before, I was probably more on the supply-side camp. I, um, I had... Uh... Craig Ironman from the Independent Institute on, I think in August of 21. And, and this was around the time that inflation was hitting about like 4% over average. And the, the big thing that, you know, I, I kind of drove across is like a lot of people don't really understand how little certain individuals have control over what we're doing. I think a lot of libertarians just like, you know, especially like finance nerds like myself, we like to look at um, Jerome Powell and, you know, we're always making fun of Papa Powell and the money printer. But at the same time, it's like, you know, throughout the pandemic and throughout all of 2021, Powell didn't do a single interview where he wasn't saying that he really had a firm understanding of how bad this is going to go and what he can really do. If anything, he was saying, listen, I'm, I'm as confused as you are on this stuff, and I'm being genuine about that. So when you've got the guy at the Fed basically saying this is beyond all high strangeness in terms of what we could have ever predicted, that, that should be a warning factor to us. And it's, it's at the point now where – you know, they, they call this – Republicans are calling this the Biden inflation, but, I mean, this, this started under Trump. and I mean, it didn't even start under Trump. We've been running like this for, for decades, and, you know, we, we, could, we could point at this being a partisan thing, but when you look at, you know, the number of times the debt ceiling has increased, the amount of money that was printed because of COVID and everything else, I mean, this is not a partisan problem. This is a problem of people not understanding that when you can print cash – almost ad hoc at any minute, what, what else should we expect of this? So it's true that the United States federal government has been fiscally irresponsible for decades. It's true that monetary policy hasn't looked good from my perspective, and I'm sure from your perspective too, for decades. But we haven't had decades of high inflation. 
In fact, we had decades of pretty moderate, reasonable inflation. So there does seem to be something categorically different about right now. Think about it. Just since the COVID crisis started, the national debt has increased more than $6 trillion, right? The national debt is now more than $30 trillion for the first time. And the Federal Reserve's balance sheet spiked from about $4.5 trillion before COVID to almost $9 trillion in assets on their balance sheet today. That's a lot of spending and that's a lot of money printing. So I think that there comes a point where quantitative distinctions and differences become qualitative distinctions and differences. I think that we're in a fundamentally different regime now and we're just not up to facing the facts about how deep a hole we've dug ourselves in. And that necessarily means that writing ourselves is going to be more difficult. But if we don't do it now, it's only going to get worse. Who, who fixes this? Like, is, is there a silver bullet? There's no silver bullet. There's no one-size-fits-all solution. The only thing that's going to work is simultaneous fiscal and monetary discipline. You need both. If you fix monetary policy without fiscal policy, you're not going to get the solutions you want. If you try and fix fiscal policy without monetary policy, you're not going to get the solutions that you want. When you think of inflation, right? think of Milton Friedman's classic definition or uh, explanation of inflation. It follows from too much purchasing power chasing too few goods and services. That sounds a lot like money printing. So it makes sense to say that the Fed, the central bank, is in the driver's seat. The thing is, though, Congress is there with them. They might not be driving the car, but they're certainly in the car. And the reason for that is when Congress perpetually runs deficits, and especially when there's a big and unexpected spike in government spending that's not covered by taxes to pay for it, people know that that's going to have to be paid for somehow, someday. Do we really expect Congress is going to raise the taxes to pay for it sometime in the future? Probably not, because spending is popular, but taxes aren't. So the other option is that we eventually default. Congress probably isn't going to let that happen either. So what's the only option left? You literally paper over our fiscal problems by printing money and buying up all those government bonds through the central bank. So deficits today cause people to expect inflation tomorrow. And the reason is, if you know you're not going to pay for all the things that you've borrowed, the only thing that can make up the gap is money printing. So we have inflationary pressures that people are worried about right now. We have inflationary pressures that people think are going to manifest in the future, which affects their behavior right now, right? Because people are forward looking. It's really kind of like a perfect storm of fiscal and monetary irresponsibility. And what I think that we need to do is actually get some serious binding rules in place on both fiscal policy and monetary policy. And without those, we're just never going to see the better side of this. We're just going to continue to get more political and bureaucratic malfeasance. What, what does defaulting on our debt actually look like? I think a lot of people say that, but in terms of how it would actually impact us as a country, I, I, I know I haven't really looked into it. And when you hear that on the news and stuff, a lot of people just kind of end the conversation there. Is defaulting something that we have to choose to do? Like, do we choose to default much like we choose to declare bankruptcy as individuals? Or does defaulting hit a point where we just can't viably get out of the situation? I wouldn't recommend a default as a strategy for getting rid of all the debt that we have. The simple fact of the matter is that government debt, US government debt, is the backbone of a global financial system. If you look at any financial model, any asset portfolio model, all of those things that we use to actually build portfolios are premised on the idea of a fundamental security that generates some minimal rate of return with essentially zero risk. Government securities are performing that role right now in the global financial system. And if we default, 
if suddenly an asset that we thought everyone thought was completely safe turns out to not be so safe, that's going to send shockwaves throughout the entire financial system, not only of the developed world, but the developing world too. And I think the consequences of that could potentially be catastrophic. And ultimately, you don't need uh, you don't need sun and moon, you know, move the earth reforms. This thing can be fixed gradually. On the spending side, what you really need to do, you don't even need to cut spending. All you need to do is slow down the rate of government spending below the rate of economic growth. And here's why that works. Economic growth means wealth in the economy growing. That's the tax base, right? That's where the potential to satisfy all these demands on the public purse comes from. If the tax base is growing faster than tax spend or government spending, then that means that over time, indebtedness as a share of national income is naturally going to fall just based on the arithmetic of it, right? And as the economy grows, our ability to service debt grows. So as long as we restrain the rate of growth of spending below economic growth, right? If the economy is growing at 3% a year, cap spending growth at 2.5% a year. If you do that, that's going to give us some major breathing room to get away from this uh, money mischief and fiscal folly that we've gotten ourselves into. So obviously the current situation of the jobs numbers, the Biden administration is saying that we're, we're hitting like, you know, record low unemployment for the first time. But anybody going out into their you know local Main Street is seeing enough. We need people now signs on the windows it would, would just getting more you know workforce participation. Go ahead and bridge that gap. Or is it more than that? We do need to get that labor force participation rate back up. There's nothing wrong with people exiting the labor force per se, so long as they're not doing it for bad policy-induced reasons. If people are just being given a slush fund by the federal government not to work, that can significantly weaken labor markets. It can imperil national competitiveness. There's no reason that we should want that. And I think that a lot of what we've seen in terms of falling labor force participation, I think that it's been almost 1% in the labor force participation rate since the onset of the pandemic, which in so short a period of time is huge. Right. You know, it doesn't seem like a movement from, you know, one number in the low 60s percent wise to another number in the low 60 percentage wise is such a big deal. But over the short term, yeah, that's actually a huge change based on the historical figures that we've seen. And so uh, Casey Mulligan, an economist at the University of Chicago, actually started doing really good work on how the federal government incentivizes people not to work. And he started back in the 2008 financial crisis. He wrote this book called The Redistribution Recession which explained in part one of the reasons that we had such a slow recovery following the 2008 crisis was bad labor market policy, which incentivized people not to try and go out and find jobs. And he's written some popular articles about that policy now that's happening in response to the COVID crisis. And I think he really has his finger on the pulse in terms of uh, incentivizing people not to work. We shouldn't be labor force market, uh, labor market participant fetishists about this, right? We shouldn't like want everyone to always be in the labor market. We shouldn't be pushing for like 70% labor force participation or anything like that. But at the same time, when we see that number dropping because of misguided policy choices, we do have reason to worry. Yeah. And by now, I mean, throughout most states, um, you know, the, uh, the additional COVID spending for unemployment, I mean, a lot of those sunsetted months ago, so, you know, right now, the, the additional influx of cash that was either coming federally or, you know, being provided by the states. I know here in Wisconsin, it, it sunsetted, you know, to, towards the end of the fall of 2021. Um, you know, it's it, it's one of the situations where people are now like, OK, now it's it, it does make sense to go get a job. Um, it's it, it's I think 
and, and correct me if I'm wrong, all, all this just comes down to a matter of willpower because the, the knowledge is there. The, the numbers show what could be done if we took the recommendations that, that, that you're offering. But it, it's, it's a matter of political will. And when you throw anything into the realm of man and politics on that, that that's where it gets dicey because the, the people in Washington don't make the best decisions based off what is best for the most, you know, mo- most of the country. They make the best decisions based off what's what's going to get them reelected. Yeah, so we need to I think that's right. I think that we need to get away from the idea that public policy is always necessarily oriented towards the public interest. Just thinking very practically, politicians are trying to solve a very specific set of problems. Foremost among those is re-election, which means that they need to please before anybody else their loudest and most uh, most uh, noisy interest groups, right? The people who are really going to cause a ruckus if they don't bring home the bacon. Well, those interest groups almost never have uh, interests that are perfectly aligned with Main Street USA, right? They have their own things going on. They want political privileges, and politicians seem more than happy to deliver it. Bureaucrats, right? Bureaucrats do not have an incentive to dispassionately carry out whatever their mandate of their organization is. They want to grow their mandate. They want to increase their funding. They want to take on more responsibility so they can justify doing more things. When you look at all the incentives that public actors face, it shouldn't really surprise us that the reforms that you and I and pretty much everybody understand at some level that we need don't actually happen. It's because while they're really great economics, they're bad politics. And that's unfortunate. We don't have a very good answer for grappling with that problem. Do you see things getting better or worse over time, especially as we're going into another midterm cycle, which is, as I say, like all the hairs on my arm stand up like this is going to be a talking point. I mean, you've got you've got like a lot of the the culture war aspects that we're seeing a lot of Republicans run on. Um, You have Democrats suddenly, uh, you know, changing the science. I mean, the the governor of Nevada um, at the time that we're recording this went ahead and uh, got rid of the statewide mask mandate, just as everyone is like, okay, we need to do this or else we're not going to go ahead and get get the votes we need. So it seems like you've got the the culture war aspects and you got Republicans also throwing in the facts that like, hey, people, now you know what inflation is. It kind of sucks, right? You know whose fault it is? It's Joe Biden's fault. I I, I have a feeling that this is going to turn into one of the situations where we're going to hear a lot of talk, but let's say Republicans manage to even take the House of Representatives and I, I, I don't know how many people are up for re-election in the Senate this time, but let's assume they get a majority in the House and the Senate. What, what, what can they really do to stop this? They're, they're going to still have Joe Biden in until 2024. Like, th- this is just going to be another cycle of them uh, talking about how bad things are and probably being really accurate with how bad things are in terms of how this is. But then they get in, and it's it, it, it's just got to... Stay the same. I wouldn't anticipate that even if Republicans take back both chambers of Congress, that that's going to result in any meaningful, lasting reforms. I am hopeful that divided government means that some of these obviously bad things will stop doing, at least in the short run. Right. And maybe that's the best that we can hope for. When you have the White House controlled by one party and another party controls Congress, that does tend to put the brakes on the worst excesses of either party. So on the one hand, it's great that we'll stop digging. On the other hand, it doesn't change the fact that we're stuck at the bottom of a very deep hole. And we need to not only not dig, we need to get out of the hole. 
And I'm just not sure that the Republican Party, as it is right now, uh, even if they keep their majorities in the legislature, which they're prospected to get in 2022, and even if they take back the White House in 2024, I'm just really not convinced that the party is up to it. I'm not convinced that they're ready to make the hard choices necessary to get us back on a sustainable fiscal and monetary footing. Yeah, I mean, it would it, it would be, you know, pe- people would call it shock therapy. Even a lot of conservatives would be shocked by, you know, the, the sacrifices we would have to make in order to, you know, save ourselves tomorrow by having to be a little bit uncomfortable today. Now, my, my next question, I want to preface, neither Alex or I are financial advisors. We can't give you advices on taxes or anything else. So please consult uh, an expert in these fields. But let's just assume, let, let's, let's, let's play in theory here. The rest of us aren't in Congress. We're not even in you know, in any of the rooms where legislation and policy is being discussed. So for the rest of us, you and I included, we've got to just survive through this while they figure things out and we hope they don't screw things up even more. In terms of how to make the impact of this inflation hurt less for grocery bills, for everything else that we have to go ahead and make sure to do to provide for ourselves and our families, what what are some of the things that you think people need to think about and consider as, you know, for the most part, this is going to be something that we're going to be dealing with for the next few years? That's a great question. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not sure I have a great answer. And we know that that's a problem because the latest data that was released, right, the latest figures that we saw when inflation reached uh, 7.5% year over year just in January We also know over that same period, real wages, meaning inflation-adjusted wages, fell by 1.7%. So this is real. People are seeing their purchasing power eroding, and that's obviously going to be something that's very difficult for them. In terms of how you can protect yourselves against it, there are assets that tend to perform well in high inflationary environments. Uh, Gold is one of them. I don't necessarily advocate buying gold. I don't own any gold myself. But if you're particularly worried about an inflation hedge, that might be one thing that you would think about adding to your portfolio. Another way to think about it is usually when prices are going up for goods and services, securities prices are going up too. And it's getting easier and easier just to open a brokerage account and buy mutual funds, right? Buy a fund that tracks the entire stock market. So that might be a way that you could preserve some of your household wealth. The idea is you don't want to get stuck trying to pick individual stocks or even individual sectors. What you really want to do is just buy the market as a whole, right? And it's actually increasingly easy to do that with a brokerage account at any one of a number of places. So if you're looking to preserve your household wealth, that might be one thing that you do. In terms of what you can do just on a day-to-day basis to keep up with falling real wages, I'm not sure there is anything. Yeah, the the, the one thing that I, I advocate here on, on most episodes is like it, it increase active and passive income revenue streams. Uh, folks, for the last couple of weeks, we've really been diving into skills that you don't necessarily need to spend a lot of time and effort working on. It's really just identifying um, rare and specialized skills that you can use and through Al Gore's amazing internet, get connected with uh, individuals and businesses across the world in order to fill those gaps. And I mean, I think that's the one thing that uh, the, the pandemic prepared a lot of people for. And that's why we have this current great resignation going on. It's where people are suddenly starting to realize that instead of cha- exchanging um, time for money, they can just provide guaranteed results for a much larger, um, you know, a, a, 
a dollar amount than if let's say they were they were sitting in their regular nine to five job. And uh, you, you see that a lot amongst millennials. You're seeing that amongst a lot of people that worked in, um, you know, the tech sector. They, they had very STEM-oriented jobs where it's like, you know, I'm making more as a, as a contractor than I was working IT for this company or working finance for this bank or something else. So th- this environment is, is tough, but it, it's only going to be tougher if, Let's say you you only have your one job from your you you only have your one stream of revenue from your nine to five and you've only been putting a little bit of money in your four hundred one k. I hope the one thing that a lot of people have started to realize through the pandemic, through the lockdowns, and through what we're doing right through what we're dealing with right now, it's that you know if if you don't have control over the source of your income. It doesn't matter how good or how bad things are. You're go. You're always going to go to sleep without that extra peace of mind, wondering whether or not you can withstand what we're dealing with. Makes sense. There's definitely some benefits that come from being able to set the terms of your own employment. Uh, that necessarily requires you to be a little entrepreneurial and for also you to be a little flexible in terms of the kinds of work and your schedule of work. If you're willing to do that, the adaptability that you can get is, is probably a pretty big benefit. Absolutely. We, we've only got a few minutes left. I want to pick your brain on this. I'm, I'm not a big fan of gold, but I am curious. Why, why are you not a big fan of gold? As an asset or as the foundation of like a, a monetary system? I, I would say as an asset, you know, I'm, I'm not a gold bug. You know, when when people talk about you know, going back to the gold standard and everything else, I'm just like that. That's impossible with how things are. Like, there's no going back to that. And and I also bring up, it's like this this false idea that if the dollar collapses, we'll go to a gold and precious metal based economy. One that's just that that just wouldn't happen, and two, even in recent times, we've never seen that happen. You know, I like when uh, Dave Ramsey brings this up when people are like, "Dave, should I go ahead and put a million dollars in gold or something?" It's like, look what happened when when Saddam's regime fell in Iraq. They did not go straight to gold; they went to bottled water and bullets. And I mean, even Hurricane Katrina, two thousand six, when you know, state of emergency happened and New Orleans is underwater. People were not exchanging gold for canned food and medical supplies. They, they went to a, they went to a barter economy. So, you know, th- this idea that we're, we're going to go back to, uh, you know, trading like gold pieces and everything else. Um, I, I, I think it's incredibly impractical. I, th- I think precious metals and I, I, people disagree with me on this and I do think they're a good criticisms but i haven't changed my mind i think precious to to invest in precious metals as an asset to hedge against inflation is very much a first world privilege otherwise if you're dealing with like a failed state or something it serves you no no benefit good points so broadly the precious metals are a hedge against inflation in the sense that they tend to see serious price appreciation in inflationary environments that being said, there's so much day-to-day, week-to-week variation that I'm not comfortable enough investing my own money in these kinds of assets under the assumption that I can predict their trends with any sort of predictability. I'm very much a passive investor. I buy mutual funds and only mutual funds. I'm long on the stock market as a whole. I don't think that I have any industry-specific, sector-specific, or firm-specific information that helps me uh, get an edge over the market. And so I'm not looking to beat any particular metric. I'm just in it for the long haul. And that's what I would recommend the vast majority of people, if not all people to do. 
In terms of using gold as the foundation of a monetary system, I agree with you. Almost certainly, we're not going to go back to a gold standard. Politically, it's just a complete non-starter. At the same time, I think it's important to emphasize that during the period of U.S. economic history when we were on a gold standard, that was the best economy that we've ever had in terms of growth, in terms of monetary stability. All the stuff that you hear about fancy economists about how off of gold standard works, they're just wrong. The data is out there. We actually know that economic growth was higher under the gold standard. We know that the long-run price level, the purchasing power of the dollar, was stable under the gold standard. We also know that under a gold standard, you can actually have mild deflation every year and not have economic disruption. So this idea that slightly falling prices necessarily is going to push the economy into a recession, which many economists for a long time believed is just flat out wrong. So gold-backed money from about 1871 to 1914 was the single best monetary regime that the United States ever had. I think it's gone for good, unfortunately, but we need to face up to that. And hopefully we can use that era of U.S. economic history to help us design some better policy rules for central bankers that at least can get us to mimic those results. Right? You don't need to go back to the gold standard to get similar benefits of a gold standard. I do think that we need some major reforms to central banking, though. If you're going to have fiat money, you got to have strict rules binding the hands of central bankers. You can't have these guys just using their discretion to do whatever they want and decide for themselves what their goals are going to be. That's not only macroeconomically ineffective, it's also democratically unjustifiable. There's no reason that we should put up with that. Alex, if only the people in Washington were, were having the same conversations we were having. If only, right? The world would look very different. I'm confident it would be better different. I agree with you. Alex, I, I always enjoy picking your brain and getting your insights on these things. If only next time we could bring you on for some good news or something else. If people want to catch up with uh, uh, your writings and everything you do, how could they do so? Yeah, I have a website, uh, awsalter, S-A-L-T-E-R.com. All of my writing, both academic and popular, is linked there, right? You can it's a mouse click away. I'm also on Twitter at Alex W. Salter, and occasionally I share my writings and other grumpy thoughts of, you know, a recalcitrant economist on there. So if you're if you're into that, I would love to, uh, to meet you and engage with you on social media. And folks, I'll make it easy for you. All the links that Alex just mentioned, I'll include in the show notes in this episode. Alex, thank you so much for coming back on, man. Thank you, Remstow. Folks, please, if you enjoy conversations like this and everything else we're doing on the show, please go ahead and do me a quick favor. It costs you nothing, but it means everything to me. A five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you're listening to the show across Al Gore's amazing internet helps spread the love and the messages of all the awesome stuff that we're discussing here twice a week. As always, I'm Remsel W. Martinez. Be safe, be good. Good night. Good night.